Because Jesus loves you infinitely, he will always do what is best for you, regardless of what it costs him and regardless of what it costs you. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open your Bibles to John chapter 13. We're studying the Gospel of John since November, probably be here through the rest of this year. Passage we're studying today, very, very famous passage. It's the washing of the disciples' feet. It's only recorded in the Gospel of John. The other three synoptic Gospels do not mention it. We are now in the very last week of Christ's life on earth. The previous three years, about three and a half years, he's been teaching and ministering throughout Judea and Galilee, doing hundreds of miracles to demonstrate his claim that he is Israel's promised Messiah, God in the flesh. Chapters 1 through 12 are one section of the Gospel of John, and they really record his public ministry. So where we've been the last six months is the public ministry of Jesus. Now, beginning in chapter 13, really through chapter 17, it's very private. He's just pulled away from public ministry and now meeting exclusively with his disciples. Chapters 13 through 16, these four chapters are often called Jesus' farewell discourse. It's the single largest block of teaching in the uh, Gospels that Jesus um, has given in one time, even more so than the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 4, 5, and 6. And this farewell discourse is really filled with promises from Jesus to those he loved beginning with his disciples, of course, in that era. But these promises in these four chapters are made to all saints that belong to Jesus throughout history. So they apply to you and I as well. And of course, in John 17, Jesus prays to his Father, and he asks God to fulfill all the promises that he's made in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16. This is an absolute remarkable section of Scripture It is rich, rich, and so we're going to be spending some time here. I'd like to put this in context, the time frame we are right now, by looking at Passion Week. Passion Week, Paschal, means suffering, so it's the suffering week. It's the last week of Jesus' life on earth. And the primary point of the Gospels, of course, is to record not just the life of Christ, but even more so the sacrificial death of Christ for our sins. That's the only reason he came to earth. He didn't come to earth to be a good teacher. He came to earth to die for the sins of the world. And out of the 33 years of Christ on earth, the last week of his life, that last seven-day period, covers fully one-third of all the gospel records. I'm going to walk you through this. On Sunday, of course, we have Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We often call that Palm Sunday. On Monday... Jesus cleansed the temple. He had done it at the beginning of his ministry. He did it now throughout the money changers. He cursed the fruitless fig tree. On the way into town, he saw a fruitless fig tree that symbolized the nation of Israel that was fruitless. On Tuesday, he taught in the temple. He had multiple encounters with the Pharisees. Matthew 23 is 
his famous sermon against them, seven woes against the scribe and Pharisees. They spend all day trying to trap him. And that afternoon, he goes out to the Mount of Olives, which is just two miles east of Jerusalem, and he gives his, his disciples a private briefing on the end times. We call that the Olivet Discourse. It was done on the shoulder of the Mount of Olives. On Wednesday, we have no record of Jesus doing anything publicly. He stayed out of the public eye. The plot to kill Jesus was finalized. Judas, on Wednesday, agrees to betray Jesus and cuts a deal for 30 pieces of silver with the religious leaders of Israel. On Thursday, where we are today, we have the Passover meal, we have the washing of the disciples' feet, we have the Lord's Supper, we have the farewell discourse and prayer in chapters 13 through 17. So these five chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, all happen on Thursday night. Five chapters John records that occurred within probably a 12-hour period. Late Thursday night, early Friday morning, we have Gethsemane, Jesus' arrest, Peter's denial, Judas' suicide, six illegal trials, floggings, beating, crown of thorns. That all takes place between about midnight Thursday and 9 a.m. Friday morning. 9 a.m. Friday morning, our Lord is crucified. 12 noon, he experiences the wrath of God. There's darkness over the land. There's an earthquake, etc., 3 p.m., Jesus dies and is buried. Saturday, he's in the tomb all day. And Sunday morning before dawn, he rises from the dead. So we have an enormous amount of gospel record packed into seven days, about one-third of all the gospels. So just giving you the context, John assumes that you know that. And in verse 1 of chapter 13, he says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own or in the world, he loved them to the end. Here's the principle. Because Jesus loves you infinitely, he will always do what is best for you, regardless of what it costs him and regardless of what it costs you. Because Jesus loves you infinitely, he will always do what is best for you, regardless of what it costs him or what it costs you. Now, let's think about Passover. This is obviously the season for that in this era, in this chapter. Passover is the most important of the three annual feasts of the Jewish nation. Every year, hundreds of thousands of peoples have gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Palm Sunday just occurred, several hundred thousand people for that. We're now on Thursday of that week. When, when Israel was enslaved by Egypt, God promised to bring them out of the land of Egypt, remember? And lead them into the promised land in Canaan. And as you recall the narrative, Pharaoh refused to let them go. And so God brought ten supernatural plagues on Egypt to demonstrate that Yahweh the God of Israel was in fact the God of the universe. Have you ever seen the Ten Commandments, Cecil B. DeMille's movie with uh, Yul Brynner, etc.? You probably Charlton Heston playing Moses. The most profound line in that movie is after the firstborn in Egypt is killed, Yul Brynner praying the Pharaoh talks about Moses' God and he says, his God is God. The God of Israel is the God of the universe. And God demonstrated that to Pharaoh in Egypt 
through his ten plagues. The last one was the death of the firstborn. So before God sent his angel of death to bring that last plague, he commanded Israel to kill a lamb. You remember the story. And place its blood on the sides of the doorpost and over the lintel, over the top, three places. And God's angel of death would see the blood on the doorpost and pass over that house and not visit that house with death. Any house he did not see the blood on the doorpost, obviously, the firstborn died at that point in time. So the message for us here from this, from this narrative is in the same way, Christ's blood applied to our hearts by faith protects us from the righteous wrath of God over our sins. We'll go into it a little bit more a little bit later. So it was, it was God's plan that Jesus was going to be sacrificed as the Lamb of God. On Friday, during Passover, at the exact time of the morning sacrifice, 9 a.m., when the lambs were being slain in the temple for the Passover, God had arranged that the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, would be sacrificed, crucified at that exact moment. Now, Israel has been doing animal sacrifices for centuries. And animal sacrifices were a picture forward of looking ahead to what Jesus was going to do, but animal sacrifices only covered sin temporarily. So they had to be repeated. They did a morning sacrifice and evening sacrifice. Morning sacrifice, evening sacrifice for centuries. Christ, Hebrews tells us, died once for all. In other words, he only had to die once because he was a perfect sacrifice. Remember that Christ's last words, almost his last words on the cross were, tetelestai, which means it is finished. It is finished. What that translate is, paid in full. Our sin debt to satisfy the righteous wrath of God against sin was paid in full at the cross. One sacrifice, never again having to be repeated. Now, Jesus, it's Thursday, he knows that within 24 hours, actually less than that, Friday is the precise time on his father's calendar for him to depart from this world and return to his father in heaven. The cross was not a human accident. The cross was a divine achievement. The cross was precisely planned from all eternity. It was designed to demonstrate the glory of God and the love of God for the world. And when we use the word world here, he's talking about the mass of unsaved humanity. He's talking about people that are lost. When, when Scripture talks about the world, it's talking about unsaved people who don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. So Jesus had called his disciples out of the world. He's just spent three years training them. And his purpose is to teach them how to bring the gospel so others can leave Satan's domain and come into God's kingdom. So conversion, we talk about being saved. You're really talking about transfer of kingdom. You're talking about leaving Satan's kingdom and under his authority and coming under Christ's kingdom and under his authority. One is bondage. One is freedom, and Jesus came to pay that price tag so we could do that. And John tells us that this section of Scripture really is all about love. It says, Jesus loved his own, his disciples, which includes you and me. It says he loved them to the end. And that word means totally. He loved them to the utmost. He loved them unconditionally. He loved them sacrificially. He loved them eternally. He loved them infinitely. Anyone who belongs to Jesus by faith 
is his own, right? We are his sheep, right? He is our shepherd, and we belong to him, and he belongs to us. And we've talked about part of that is because Jesus loves you, he will always do what is best for you regardless of cost. And today we're going to look at the first of two sections about that cost. Number one, today he demonstrated his love for his disciples by humbly taking the role of a slave and washing their filthy feet. Now, within less than 24 hours, he's going to do the ultimate demonstration of sacrificial service by dying for their sins on the cross, by dying for sins on our cross. This same night, he's going to tell them in, in, in John 15, it's recorded, quote, greater love has no one than this, than what? A man lay down his life for his friends. And then he said, you are my friends if you do what I command you. So he is laying down his life as an example of his love for us. And then he says, you, I'm commanding you to love one another by what standard? As I have loved you. You lay down your life for the benefit of your brothers and sisters in the same way that I have laid down my life. Now, if you look at John's vocabulary, there's some major shifts here. If you look at the first 12 chapters, the word world, world, it occurs 34 times, about three times per chapter. Big emphasis on the world. In the last five chapters, chapters 13 through 17, the world occurs 41 times. Pretty big emphasis, the beginning of John, middle of John on the world. In chapters 1 through 12, the word life, life. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. Cursed 50 times, about four times a chapter. In chapters 13 through 17, the word life only occurs six times. Not a major focus. But love is a major focus of the last five chapters we're going to be studying, 13 through 17. In chapters 1 through 12, love only occurs 12 times, one per chapter. In chapters 13 through 17, love is a dominant theme of John. It occurs 34 times. So this section of Scripture, 13 through 17, is about the demonstration of the love of God for the world and especially for his own. Jesus obviously is now ministering to his disciples, and because he loves them especially, he spends the last hour before his death preparing them for what's to come. You need to know that Jesus' love is unconditional. But it's not blind. It's not blind. Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. He knew that Peter was going to deny him. He knew that Thomas was going to doubt him. And he knew that all of them were going to desert him in less than 12 hours. And yet, he washed their feet. All of them. None of them deserved his love, and neither do any of us. But Jesus knows what they need, and he knows what we need. That night, they all had dirty, unwashed feet that needed cleaning, and Jesus cleansed them, obviously. And that cleansing is a picture of the sin that we all need cleansing from. The reality is we are all dirty sinners, and Jesus came to earth to do what? Wash us, make us clean. I want you to notice that every detail of Jesus' mission was very carefully planned. The other Gospels record that on Thursday morning, Jesus sent Peter and John to, to prepare an upper room. To get an upper room means the second floor of, of a house, 
a room, upper room, where they could have the Passover, right? And Jesus didn't tell any other disciples what was happening. He said, Peter and John, just you two, go and prepare an upper room. You got to make ready for this Passover feast we're going to have that night. Now, Jesus did that because he knew that Judas had already gone to the chief priests and already sold him out and already cut a deal for 30 pieces of silver. So if Judas knew where they were going that night for the Passover festival, he would have the chief priests and the soldiers there at the upper room waiting for him, and he would be arrested. Why is that a problem? Jesus had an exact deadline for the cross, 9 o'clock Friday morning when the rest of the lambs were being sacrificed. That's when he had to go to the cross. Until then, it was too early. So down to the last details, you see the perfect planning of the Father and the Son in preparing for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sin. Now, John is the only one who does not mention the Lord's Supper. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record that. John is the only one who talks about washing disciples' feet. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't record that. So every gospel writer, of course, is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and they write what the Lord tells them, depending on what God wants them to talk about. Let's look at verse 2. During supper, this is the Passover meal, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Here's the principle. Jesus expresses his love for us by performing humble, sacrificial service for our eternal benefit. Jesus expresses his love for us by performing humble, sacrificial service for our benefit. Now, you, when you, when the first time you look at this passage, you say, why did John mention Judas? At the same time, he's mentioning the love of Jesus. He's contrasting the sacrificial love of Jesus with the selfish hatred of Judas. Now, we already know that Judas is already gone and talked to the chief priest because he did that right after Mary anointed his feet. He went out and cut a deal to, to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. John tells us that the idea of betrayal, the notion that you should betray Jesus came from the devil. The devil himself was the one who planted that thought in Judas's mind. Obviously, it didn't take Jesus by surprise, right? Earlier, Jesus said in John 6, 70, Did I not myself choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now, he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus said this years ago, right? Jesus chose the twelve disciples after spending all night in prayer. Obviously, the choice of the twelve was a pretty major decision. If he was going to entrust the ministry of the gospel that was going to change the world, choosing those twelve was going to be a pretty big deal. Spent all night in prayer, prayerfully chose Judas, knowing that he was going to be the one to betray him. At the point he chose him, he knew that Judas was going to be the one. Choosing Judas was not a mistake. It was part of God's plan, perfect plan. 
And John notes that the Father has given all things into Jesus' hands. What he's really highlighting is Jesus is sovereign over all things. Jesus is sovereign over Judas' betrayal. Jesus is sovereign over his own death and resurrection and suffering. Jesus said, I lay down my life because I choose to. No one takes my life from me. I choose to lay it down. So John is highlighting the absolute sovereign control of the Lord Jesus Christ over everything. Every detail of Christ's sacrifice for our sins was pre-planned in eternity by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Just before his ascension, Jesus commissioned the 12 disciples, and he says something very interesting. He doesn't say go. He starts by saying in 28.18, all authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. That sounds like sovereignty, doesn't it? Sounds like kingship, and it is. Based on that, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. So Jesus was sent to earth by his Father in heaven, and when his earthly mission is completed, John says, he came from heaven, and he's going back to heaven. He's emphasizing his lordship, his kingship, and the fact that he's God in the flesh. And of course, Philippians tells us, because Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, God gave him a name above every other name, every knee will bow, he has all authority in heaven on earth. It's going to be really important for the disciples to see this. In less than 24 hours, their rabbi, who they've been following for three and a half years, is going to be executed and in the grave. And if you don't think that caused them some massive doubts, Jesus spent all of John 14 trying to talk with them about that very effectively. So today, what we want to look at is Jesus' hands, which of course are created the universe, are going to wash dirty feet. And they're going to wash the feet of dirty people who have dirty hearts. Jesus is demonstrating his unconditional love by performing the most menial task assigned to the lowest slave in the household, washing feet. Love, biblical love, Christ's love, by definition, is unselfish. If you want a good definition of love, you read 1 Corinthians 13, and one of the best phrases that describe that is 1 Corinthians 5, 13, verse 5, and it says, Love does not seek its own. Love is not selfish. Love is all about others. Love spins itself for the benefit of others. Love does not use or manipulate people into giving you what you want if you give them what they want. That's called doing a deal. That's not love. Lots of marriages have a lot of deal-making in it, in case you haven't experienced that. Live long enough, you will. The word service, by the way, means to create value for the benefit of others. William Booth, the founder of Salvation Army, was sick one time, and he could not attend one of the Salvation Army major annual conferences, and he telegrammed one word to the delegates. Others. Others. Because we're inveterately selfish people. Who do you spend 99% of your time thinking about? C'est moi, right? I mean, that's what we do, right? We think about us. Don't worry about people not thinking about you. They're not thinking about you. (laughs) They don't think about you at all. You go, oh, I had to look right. They're not thinking about you. I mean, 
You're thinking about you. They're not thinking about Sorry, I didn't mean to break your bubble, right? So the love of Jesus is other-centric. It is not about himself, and therefore our love for others should be other-centric, not self-centered. Now let me give you a frame of reference to understand what's going on. In that era, there were no closed-toed shoes. They didn't have them. They only had sandals, open-toed sandals. There were no sidewalks for pedestrians. Everyone walked on dusty roads. When you came to into the home where you were a guest, you were invited for dinner, you didn't jump in your Lexus and drive over there, you walked to where you were going for dinner, right? It was customary for the host to have a, a water pot by the door, and they had a slave there to wash your feet. That was a common courtesy. It was considered so menial and so lowly that when John the Baptist wanted to convey how much lower he was than Jesus, he said, I'm not even worthy to kneel before Jesus and unloosen his sandals and wash his feet. I'm not even worthy to do that. And that was the lowest job of the lowest slave in the household. Friends did not wash other friends' feet in this era. Neither did family members. Even Jewish slaves did not wash feet. Only Gentile slaves washed feet. Now, it's interesting what's not present. You know enough about Sherlock Holmes to understand that what was unique about one of his mysteries is the dog that did not bark when you would expect a dog to bark if there's an intruder. What's not present in this room is a servant. There's no servant present at this Passover meal to wash the disciples' feet. Well, the meeting was secret, obviously, so none were present. It seems that Jesus had arranged for there to be no servant present because he knew what he was going to do. He had prearranged for the water pitcher to beside the door. He prearranged for the basin, for the towel. He had prearranged for all that. But having your feet washed before dinner was expected. That was a normal courtesy. And you can imagine the disciples coming to the room and looking around and wondering where the servant was. Now, none of them were going to wash each other's feet. We know that. Because Luke tells us that before the meal, they were in the room having an argument about which one was the greatest. Luke twenty two twenty four 24 says, And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. Have you noticed that proud people do not want to serve? They want to be served, right? This is not the first time, by the way, disciples have argued about who was greatest. It's a pretty common practice. They all coveted the highest positions in Jesus' kingdom. Remember, they thought Jesus was going to come as the conquering king, overthrow Rome, and set up his government in Jerusalem. And they all wanted the cabinet posts. I want the position of power and authority as close to Jesus as possible. Remember, James and John's mother, Salome, shows up one afternoon, and she says, I have a request to make. And of course, Jesus is altogether wise, says, what do you want? He's not going to say yes until he knows what she wants. She says, command that when you set up your kingdom, my two sons, who are special, James and John, 
would sit on your left hand and your right hand in your kingdom. I mean, they're going to have the positions of honor and authority right next to Jesus. And it says the rest of the disciples were furious, probably because they didn't think of asking first. You know, they thought, I need to get on this deal. Mark 9 records on another occasion, the disciples are walking toward Capernaum, that's the home base of Jesus in northern, and they're arguing. They have an argument about which one is the greatest. And Jesus, of course, knows this. He's walking on ahead, and he asks them, what were you talking about on the way? And they go, I mean, none of them are talking, right? Because he knows what they're talking about. And he calls a little child, sets the child on his lap, and he says, you must humble yourselves and become like a child, which was a rebuke for their arrogance. So it seems likely that when the disciples enter the upper room on the evening of Thursday night to celebrate the Passover, they are all intent on sitting in the places of honor. Now remember, in that era, the closer you sat to the host, the higher your social status, right? That was the way it was. Even um, William Randolph Hearst at Hearst Castle, he, he had, of course, a very famous uh, castle there, and he had dinners for his guests, and they would come up from Hollywood or San Francisco. And the rule of thumb was he and his longstanding girlfriend sat at the middle of this very, very long table. And the first night you were there, you sat next to them, one on the right and one on the left, right? And the next night, somebody else got that spot, and you bumped down one. And the next night you bumped down another, and the next night you bumped down another, and when there was no more chairs at the table, you were hasta la vista. You were supposed to leave, right? That was your kind of clue. You kind of just moved further and further away from the host, and when there were no more chairs, you were gone. Well, in this era, it was the closer you sit to the host, the more honor you had. So everybody wanted to sit close to the host. And you can almost see the disciples just racing to get the best place at the table, right? Now, in that era, remember, you didn't sit at the table with chairs, with your feet under the table out of sight. The tables were always U-shaped. You had a head table and then two arms like this, you know, the head table, the two arms. So it was a U-shaped arrangement, and they kept the fourth side open to serve the food. And those sitting at the meal were often said to recline at table, right? That wasn't a, you know, a lazy boy recliner. They literally would, they had cushions all around the table, and they often reclined on their left side, kind of laid on their left side on these cushions with their head toward the table, and then they could eat with their right hand. The problem is, if you were laying close to the table like this, your feet were over here, and that's where the next person's head was. So you can understand why washing feet was kind of nice. I mean, you know, your feet were in their face, so washing feet was... Pretty, you know, stinky feet were pretty objectionable. Washing was really common courtesy. So dinner is served, right? They're starting the Passover meal, and everyone is eating. No one has done anything, and Jesus gets up and picks up the tools of the trade and starts washing the disciples' feet. It was necessary. No one was going to do it, so he did it. He dressed himself like a slave, which means he took out his outer garment, kept his linen undergarment on, which is typically what a slave would wear. So obviously he took his outer garments off so they wouldn't get dirty. Picked up a long towel. They wore a, a belt around their waist. This towel was long, so they tucked the one end of the towel underneath the belt, and then they had enough here that they could wash and dry uh, the disciples' feet. Poured water in the basin and began to wash and dry their feet. 
Can you imagine the impact? I mean, the silence must have been deafening. Their Lord, God in human flesh, God was taking the lowest role of the lowest servant, doing the dirtiest work they can imagine, washing somebody else's dirty feet, and they wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. And God is now working the way around the table, and he's going to wash their feet. Guess what? Jesus' feet were dirty too. You would think that he's been prophesying about his death, and they call him Lord of glory, that one of them would say, you know, it's been three years, I think we should wash his feet. Not so much. He put his needs ahead of their needs, that servanthood. Verse 6. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Simon said, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Here's the principle. To have an intimate relationship with our Lord, we must confess our sins every day and ask Jesus to wash us clean. To have an intimate relationship with our Lord, we must confess our sins every day and ask Jesus to wash us clean. You know, all of us have dirty feet. We walk in the world and we pick up sin, right? Contamination. The challenge is not that. The challenge is, are you comfortable with dirty feet? Many, many people rationalize dirty feet. Everybody's got dirty feet. No big deal. I mean, you know, it's not a problem. Don't get too comfortable with sin. Matter of fact, you should be deeply uncomfortable with any sin. That's what he's talking about. So it seems as though the disciples are in stunned silence as Jesus works away around the table washing their feet. I mean, they must have been convicted, embarrassed, incredulous. When Jesus comes to Peter, Peter could not believe that Jesus was doing this. And he said in the vernacular, you don't think you're really going to wash my feet, do you, Lord? Now, Peter knew that Jesus was God. He had confessed it. He knew that he was a sinful man. He said, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Peter and his disciples believed that Jesus was going to rule and reign as a conquering king. They got that. They didn't understand his dying. They didn't understand his humility. They didn't understand his sacrifice. Peter was not going to let God humble himself to the point of the lowest slave and wash his feet. Jesus responds with so much grace, it's almost incredulous. He says, Peter, you don't understand right now what I'm doing, but you will understand it later. We know we did understand it later. When you read First and Second Peter, you know Peter got it. Right now, Jesus is telling Peter, trust me, Peter. Do what I tell you to do, even though you don't understand it. Application. Has God ever done anything in your life that you did not understand? Some of you are in the middle of it as we speak. Has God ever said, son, daughter, trust me. Trust me. I know you don't understand. Trust me. 
Do we trust Jesus based on who he is, or we demand that he explain why he is doing what he is doing before we're going to comply? See, if we, if, we, if we demand that he explain, it assumes that we actually understand everything that God is doing. I'm sorry, my friends, you're smart, but you're not that smart. The infinite mind of God does what he does from eternity past to eternity future, and we're, we don't understand. Number two, we assume that God needs our approval before he can intervene in our life. Has God ever intervened in your life without asking permission? That's the only way he acts. He never asks permission because he's God and he knows what he's doing. He's all wise, all powerful, all loving, and his decisions are always based on what he knows what's best. Now, Peter doesn't really believe that yet. And now he proceeds to tell Jesus, never shall you wash my feet, Lord. No way, no how, not now, not never. Pretty strong in the Greek. This is coming from someone who just said, Lord, no way, not now, not now, ever, right? Lord means what? Owner, master, sovereign, king. And he's telling that king what? Forget about it. You ain't going to do what you said you're going to do. Peter's got a great deal of confidence in his ability to understand the situation, right? Unfortunately, he's missing the whole point. Jesus is talking far greater than just dirty feet. He's talking about spiritual cleansing from sin. He says to Peter, if I don't wash your sins away, you can't have a relationship with me. Now that was a slap in the face that got Peter's attention because Peter's, Peter valued his relationship with the Lord more than anything, and he was willing to do anything to preserve that. So now Peter swings from the other, one extreme to the other. Never, never wash my feet. Give me a complete bath, right? And Jesus said, you don't need a complete bath, Peter. You bathed at home. When you, went to, when you went to a friend's house for dinner, you bathed at home before you left home. So when you got there, the only thing they did washing was what? Your feet. You just need your feet washed. The rest of you is already clean. What he's telling the disciples is, you're already clean. I have already saved you. By the way, how would you respond if Jesus showed up one morning at your house, rang the doorbell and said, wanted to let you know that you're saved. Just wanted you to hear it from me. You're guaranteed going to heaven. I will see you when it's time. How would you feel? Well, that's what he just told the 12. He said, you're already clean. You're already saved. By faith, you've already confessed me as Lord. Your salvation is assured, but not all of you. He's talking about Judas, right? However, Jesus said, even after you're saved, even after you're completely bathed in the blood of the Lamb, you still walk in a dirty world, and you encounter the contamination of sin. One of the things that happens as we mature in Christ is we become far more conscious of sin than we were before. I am appalled at how evil my heart is. I'm appalled. It seems like all I'm ever doing is confessing sin to the Lord. And all of it's up here, right? At this stage of life, most of your sin is not behavioral. It's in your thought life. It's in your motives. It's in doing good things for selfish reasons, right? Like you do the dishes because you want to impress your spouse. I have done that lots of times. 
Now, some of you guys don't even get that far. You know, you might start there. I'm kidding. Jesus said, you need bathing. You did that when you placed your faith in me, but now you need your foot washed. What is that? The Christian's bar of soap is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteous. How often do you need to do that? Whenever you sin. Which I presume for most of us is pretty regularly. Right? This should be, you know, you shouldn't have this verse memorized because we should be doing it on a regular basis. It keeps us clean. Confessing our sins is the equivalent of washing our feet. Verse 12. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Here's the principle. The reality of Jesus is displayed to the world through our loving, humble service for one another. The reality of Jesus is displayed to the world through our loving, humble service to for one another. Notice that he did not say, only if they deserve it. Only if they're nice to you, right? Jesus taught by example, not by words. Jesus understood our pride. He understood our competitive spirit. He knows that his disciples needed a lesson in humility, and he knows we need a lesson in humility. So he first, he didn't give them a sermon on humble service. He showed them. He gave them an example. He modeled it for him, and then he told them, as I have served you, you humbly serve brothers and sisters in Christ. If I am the Lord of glory, and I humbled myself, and I served you, then you, his disciples, should go and do likewise and serve one another. He reiterated, we're going to hear this in a couple of weeks, in John 13, 34, he tells them, a new commandment I give to you, that you what? Love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And how will they know you have love for one another? Because you engage in humble, sacrificial service for their benefit. We serve Christ primarily by serving each other. Not only, but primarily, obviously we serve him by bringing the gospel to the lost. You know, when Jesus called the twelve to be his disciples, he only used two words. Follow me. Right? Follow me. A disciple, by the way, is a learner. It's one who learns. It's one who learns from the master. Jesus said, follow in my steps. Go where I do. Live like I live. See what I see. Love like I love. Serve like I serve. They had spent three years with him, watching him live out the reality of service. Humble, sacrificial service for the benefit of others. Now, 
Washing feet is really a euphemism for serving one another. The list of ways that you can serve each other is almost infinite. You can forgive instead of criticize. You can pray for instead of gossip. You can cook a meal, get on a meal train. You can text a note of encouragement. You can make a phone call. You can help someone with a basic task. You can drive someone to a doctor's office. You can babysit. You can teach a class. One of the basic things you can do is listen to them talk without trying to fix them, right? Like you know they should be fixed because, of course, God talks to you first and them second, right? I mean, you know what I mean. If you, have you ever had someone just listen to you and not give you 10 tips how to make your life work? Just listen and let you talk it out and try and sort it out and just listen and pray with you. It is remarkable how much help it is just to listen and pray for somebody because we are not the magic in their lives. The Lord Jesus is the one who changes life. There's literally no limit on the number of ways you can express your love for other people through humble service. If I ask Maren the things to do around the house, she can tell me 25 things that I did not see. I didn't see them. But we're called to do those things because we love Jesus, not because we want public recognition. The motivation behind the serving should be to love that person, not get recognition for it. Jesus also warned his disciples, he said, by the way, you are not blessed for knowing this stuff. There is no blessing for knowledge. There's blessing for what? Doing. Doing what you know. Jesus knew they all wanted to be great, but their ideas of greatness came from the world. John, Luke records that after Jesus washed their feet, he gives them a, a contrast in what the world considers great and what God considers great. Luke twenty two twenty five, 25, and he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater? The one who reclines at the table, that was the 12, or the one who serves, that was Jesus. It is not the one, is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. I am the God of glory who sits at the right hand of the Father, who created the heavens and the earth with a word, and I am on my hands and knees washing your dirty, stinky feet. And tomorrow, I'm going to shed my blood and lay down my life for you because I love you. In God's kingdom, greatness is not measured by how many people serve you. It's measured whether you serve others with genuine love and humility. See, the world wants to be served. The world craves leadership positions. Why does everybody want to run for office? Hint, it ain't because they want to wash feet. You know, we crave power. We want to dominate others. We want to get as many people as possible to meet our desires. And in God's kingdom, leadership is exercised for the benefit of others, not yourself. Our ultimate example of this is Christ, and, John, and uh, Paul records this, in Philippians 2.5. 
most, some of the most profound verses in Scripture. He's talking about humility, and he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's the principle. You won't like this one. Since Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, and I am his servant, there is no task that is beneath me. Let me say that again. Since Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, and I'm a servant, that word bondservant is doulos, it means slave, there is no task that is beneath me. Jesus humbled himself and came all the way down from heaven, the perfections of heaven, and he came down to a sinful cesspool called earth. He temporarily set aside some of his divine prerogatives while on earth. He became a man with all the limitations of a human body, even though he was sinless. He humbled himself further by dying for the sins of the guilty. He died as a common criminal, but through crucifixion. Crucifixion was the most painful, prolonged method of death yet invented. Even worse, he endured the wrath of God for the sins of those he loved. We know that God loves us. And we know that God, you know that God loves you. Romans 5.8 says what? But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, I don't know what your situation in life is in detail. I know everyone in this room is struggling with issues. And some of you might be saying why. And some of you might be saying, I'm tired of this. And some of you might be saying, Lord, I don't understand you need to look at all of that suffering, troubles, trials through the grid of the cross. You need to look at it through the cross and say, I never doubt Jesus loves me because he died for me. I don't ever have to doubt that he's got my best interest in mind because he laid down his life on my behalf. I know he loves me by the service he did on the cross for me. You know, the truth of it is, we will always serve who we love. We will always serve who or what we love. If someone says, I don't serve anybody but me, they're basically saying, I don't love anybody more than me. That's where most of the world is. I serve myself, right? But everybody serves somebody, as Bob Dylan said. It's a question of who. We've all been loved by Jesus. He's demonstrated it. And we who follow him are called to love Jesus above all and demonstrate that love through humble sacrificial service to one another, just as he served us. You know, if you ask the Holy Spirit when you leave your Lord, show me how to love the people you put in my life this week, he will do it. That's a little scary because it probably won't be a position of elevation. You know, we have an 18-month-old grandson and a four-year-old, and I'm changing diapers. And I'm telling you, I'm very familiar with poopy diapers. 
Very familiar. And depending on what you feed him, they can be odiferous. Odiferous. And I was looking at that this Friday, and we have them all day Friday, and I'm thinking, Lord, what do you smell when you're around me? I mean, I'm full of sin. And sin smells. Just saying. Let's summarize. Point one, because Jesus loves you infinitely, he will always do what is best for you, regardless of what it costs him or what it costs you. I could spend a lot on that last five words. Number two, Jesus expresses his love for us by performing humble, sacrificial service for our eternal benefit. We saw this today with washing feet. He obviously demonstrated at the cross in far greater depth. Number three, to have an intimate relationship with our Lord, we must confess our sins every day and ask Jesus to wash us clean. That's where intimacy comes from, having a pure life before him. Number four, the reality of Jesus is displayed to the world through our loving, humble service for one another. If we really served each other as Christ served us, people would be banging down the doors of the church to get in. They would say, I can't believe what I'm seeing. Your love is magnetic. It draws. It's the most attractive thing in the world. I want what you have. You'll know we're Christians by our love. That's the reality of Jesus. And lastly, since Jesus emptied himself to the point of death, and I'm his servant, there is no task that is beneath me. Okay, thank you for being here next week. Read ahead. We'll jump ahead maybe the next 10, 12 verses in chapter 13. I love you all, and now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.